Welcome back to another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Leatherberry. Election season is in full swing, and for many Marylanders, this year's governor's race between Ben Jealous and Larry Hogan is arguably the most important statewide election in recent years. After a crowded Democratic primary this past June, voters are getting to know Ben Jealous and Susie Turnbull, his running mate, and familiarizing themselves with their progressive platform. This week, we sat down with Susie Turnbull, the Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. Susie has held local, state, and national positions in the Democratic Party. Ben Jealous has said of Susie that they share a commitment to bringing people of diverse backgrounds together to address major problems facing the state. Susie Turnbull joined us from her home in Bethesda to talk more about why she joined the race and why she thinks Ben Jealous is the right pick for governor of Maryland. Thanks for joining us, Susie. Great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Why did you decide to become involved in politics and what prompted you to run with Ben Jealous? Well, it's sort of funny. I originally got involved in politics when I was still in college. Um, I was an intern for the Cincinnati City Council with someone that is now fairly famous. His name is Jerry Springer, who is a county council member. And Jerry was working on issues that were important at the time. Um, I went to college during the time of protests against the Vietnam War, protests pro-environment, the beginnings of recycling efforts across the country. Uh, we even worked on issues of clean water and and cable, whether people could have would have cable in their yards, and I was very interested in that, and I wanted to make that my career. So I was involved in government and politics always. My master's in, and bachelor's degrees <clears throat> are in urban studies and urban politics and urban policy. So it's always been part of me. I got involved with Ben years after I had been engaged here in Maryland since 1982 when I walked into a congressional campaign office. And so it was a logical move for someone who had never run for office before. Ben, uh, from the very first meeting with me, impressed me on his uh, vision for our state and wanting to do big things again for our state, including the issues that are so important to Marylanders on education, on health care, and on building a strong economy. Speaking of the vision for Maryland, why do you think that Maryland needs a change in governor? What about the current vision isn't something that well, you're doing? What is amazing is that we that our the current governor has not fully funded our schools. The Kerwin Commission is going to be coming out after the election, of course. Um, but the Kerwin Commission, which is reviewing our schools, has already come out and said that we're underfunding our schools close to $2.9 billion a year. That's a problem. The issue of um, the casino dollars that we as Maryland voters expected to be spent on education um, and supplement education funding actually supplanted education funding and dollars were used for other things. We want to fix our broken health care system. There's no question that the status quo is the least attractive option, and what Ben and I are talking about is fixing our broken health care system, and we want to invest in small business. There are 
many more things that our government can be doing to encourage small business and to grow small business than simply investing in Amazon proposals, um, which may or not ever come to fruition. Our vision is to grow Maryland's economy by investing in working families, putting more dollars in their pockets every day, making sure that we can raise wages and provide the capital to small businesses that they need. So I know you mentioned education. What progressive issues do you and Vangelis think are most important to Marylanders? Um, and how, how does the campaign support working families? As far as education is concerned, I think every aspect about education is a progressive issue. It is a family issue, and it's a working family issue for Marylanders. Um, before Governor Hogan took office, Maryland's public schools were ranked first in the nation. I mean, for five years running. And now, under his leadership, we've slipped to sixth. Um, we want to reverse that trend immediately by making sure we raise teachers' pay by 29%, making them competitive, fund full-day universal pre-K by legalizing and, and taxing marijuana for adult use, and we want to force Annapolis to keep its promise to use all the casino money um, and lottery revenue that's out there to increase education spending and not replace the money they've just shifted into other things. That's a progressive issue. Another progressive issue is ending the student debt crisis. And the era of mass incarceration, which is plaguing our nation and our state, and use those funds here in Maryland to fund initiatives that will make college eventually tuition-free and ensure that no Marylander is forced to accrue massive debt in order to get their education. What we know is for every dollar that goes into incarceration, dollars go down for higher education, and we're going to reverse that trend. Other issues, Medicare for all. Healthcare premiums have increased about 120% during Hogan's tenure in Maryland for certain premiums. Double-digit increases each year. And that hurts not only individuals, but small businesses, and it bankrupts families. Our seniors are seeing their prescription drug costs spike. That's a progressive issue. That's a human issue. And some of these um, seniors are having to choose between their medications and other basic needs. We want to work to ensure that Maryland makes real progress on ensuring families have a health care system that works for all families, for, all, and for, their, for their immediate families, for their parents, for seniors, and for small businesses. How is the campaign reaching out to people in the state and talking to folks about these issues? Well, we, we've been holding lots of forums, and we're out there talking about many of our issues. For example, we talked last week, we were in Baltimore City talking about Innovation Maryland, which is a small business and entrepreneurship plan that builds on Ben's experience as an investor helping small business and entrepreneurs. Maryland has been stuck with lagging wage growth, GDP growth, and job growth much below our neighbors in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and the rest of the nation as they've been moving forward. So we're talking about things like that. We're talking about criminal justice and police reform and the opioid crisis. Because in our state, the state's in crisis. Communities across Maryland, from Baltimore to Oakland to Ocean City to Rockville, and everywhere in between are suffering from the scourge of addiction. So 
we have been going out there, meeting with people, and talking about those issues. Already, we have over 40 organizers on the ground statewide, knocking on doors, organizing volunteers, and getting out the word on our plans, on health care, on education, and the economy. And to put this in perspective, in 2014, on Election Day, our state party and Democratic nominee only had 14 organizers on the ground. We already have 40, which is a significant change, and it's something that we're ramping up. We're only just beginning. And we have people like you and people out there with all of these groups um, who are so engaged in our campaign, groups who came into fruition after the 2016 election. I'm going this afternoon to a poster-making party um, with one group for a rally that's going to be held on Saturday where there are 30 groups co-sponsoring a blue wave rally in Montgomery County. We're seeing that kind of excitement energy across the state. We have 17 offices open already with coordinated campaign involvement, and it is a robust campaign. I know we had lots of Democratic nominees earlier on. How has the campaign worked to bring Democrats together and continue reaching out to Democrats who may need some convincing to support Vangelis? Well, it's sort of interesting because what Ben and I both have done is we've spent our careers organizing. We've um, been, as the former head of the NAACP, worked to make government accountable to all people, especially women and, and people of color. And I, too, have been engaged throughout my career and through my volunteer work as both a, a democratic activist and as a nonprofit leader in this state and across the nation, bringing people together. We have relationships with Democrats in office, but we also have relationships with those everyday people who are knocking on those doors and who are making those phone calls for us. And that's how we're reaching out. When people hear what we want to do, they're convinced. They don't want money being sent from public schools to private schools in growing proportions, which is something that Hogan did. They want people moving forward on the environment and not just when it's convenient, but all the time. They don't want to continue the possibility that appointments to certain boards and commissions, like in Maryland, um, Governor Hogan was defeated in his attempt to get NRA supporters on the handgun control um, advisory board. Uh, he worked against getting teachers and, and education advocates on the state school board. When people hear these stories and they hear who Hogan is and what Ben and I want to do, they don't need much convincing because they understand what's at stake. If elected, you'd be the second woman lieutenant governor in Maryland's history. What role do you think women play in today's politics and why do you think it's important to have women in power? This is something really near and dear to my heart. What you may or may not know is that from most of my career, I've worked 
standing up for people who don't have a voice and making government more accountable to people, um, especially women. And I am of the generation that were that did a lot of the firsts. Um, I was the first female chair of the Montgomery County Democratic Party in close to 20 years um, when I was when I was chair. When I was chair of the Maryland Democratic Party, I was the first woman chair in 20 years. And here, once again, we have a situation where we have not had a woman in office here in Maryland. The last lieutenant governor finished her term in 2002. That's 16 years ago. It's a long time. That's been who I am and what I've been part of. And this year, it's the year of the woman. And I'm very proud that in 2011, um, I, with others, wonderful people from across our state, founded Emerge Maryland on my back porch. And since that time, dozens and dozens of women have been trained to run for office and have run successfully. People like Jessica Fitzwater, who's a county um, commissioner in Frederick County, um, uh, Brooke Learman in Baltimore City, who is a legislator, strong, vital legislator. Um, we have a number of people across our state, and I'm really proud of it. Um, we don't have women in, right now in 2018. We do not have any other women running for federal office, Democratic women running for federal office, and we have no elected women holding statewide office. I would be the only one. And that's just, that's not acceptable. It's not just about representation. It's We know when we include a diversity of voices, we reach people who sometimes are ignored. And I could tell you a story about that. Um, I, I learned that lesson a really hard way. When I was younger, uh, 35 years ago, my father passed away, and two years later, my mom um, moved into a residential treatment facility, a nursing home in Ohio. And she had a, an illness um, similar to Lou Gehrig's disease. And for seven years, she lived in a nursing home, was never treated, never um, screened for breast cancer. Um, she was treated for what brought her into the nursing home, which was typical at those times in those days. Um, and a nurse's aide on, on just a random occasion located a, a lump in my mother's breast, which turned out to be cancerous. So my mom went in for surgery, and because of her long-standing health issues, um, she passed away during the recovery that night from the surgery, which is very unusual in people. That isn't something that is anticipated or expected and, and was very difficult for our family. What happened then is um, I came back to Maryland and I called a friend who was the head of the, who, who managed, and it turned out he was president at the time of the Maryland Nursing Home Association. And I said, Harvey, talk to me how could this have happened that she had never been screened? My grandmother had, had breast cancer. My mother's aunts had breast cancer. There was a lot of family history here. How come she was never screened? And he said to me, Susie, the problem is that women in nursing homes and men in nursing homes aren't screened for preventive health care. They're there 
to take care of what brought them in. And I was just appalled, as you can imagine, and distraught. And um, during a condolence call uh, that night, actually, that night, um, Brian Frosch, who was then a member of the House of Delegates and someone I knew because of politics, because I'd been involved and engaged in, in, in politics, and a former Senator Ida Rubin, State Senator Ida Rubin, were over. And I told them the story, and they said, well, we'll take you to see the governor because he cares about preventive health care. And they set up an appointment, and within days, literally days, I was in to see Governor Schaefer. I sat down, I told him the story of what had happened. He looked at me, he goes, well, we can fix this. We're going to fix this. He picked up the phone, called the um, CEO of the Maryland Nursing Home Association, and said, let's do this. We pulled together a commission. We pulled people together, nurses, doctors, um, consumers like me and others, and we talked about this and met over a year and a half. And the next May, Governor Schaefer stood by me in a facility in Baltimore City, and we announced that from that day forward, women in nursing homes were going to be screened, and men would be screened for prostate cancer. When you've done something like that, that teaches you that government can be responsive. It doesn't always take legislation for it to get done. It can be good people, and in this case it was Governor Schaefer, working with, with someone who had a problem and solving the problem for other people. I tell this story often because it was just remarkable. I came home, I got in my car, and it was before we even had cell phones, and, but we had car phones in the, in the console in the car. And I picked up the phone and I called my husband and I said, and I started to cry, and I said to him, we just saved somebody's life. And I said, I don't know who it is, but we just saved somebody's life. And when something like that happens in your life, it commits you to being involved. And I see that in a Ben Jealous, too. Ben grew up sitting um, in, during the summers on the stoop with his grandfather, who was a probation officer in, in Baltimore city, a, a juvenile probation officer, and he would tell stories to, to Ben about, about hope and, and, and teaching him about um, right from wrong. His grandmother was a, a social worker in, in Maryland who trained Barbara Mikulski. Ben also has shown me, and through his stories of his life, you know, his parents fought for their marriage. Um, which, because Ben's father is white and his mother is black, their marriage was illegal in Maryland. They couldn't cohabitate in Maryland, and so they moved away before loving became the law of the land. And he grew up knowing the importance of being a civil rights advocate and leader. And I grew up the child of an immigrant and whose, whose parents worked hard, were working working people who, my dad drove a cab, my mom worked in a department store, um, making just pennies, literally, above the minimum wage, and taking two buses to go to work. So this year, being with Ben and talking to people and being a social justice advocate 
and champion, basically, for the people who are still taking two buses to work, and it may take them two and a half hours. And the bus lines have been cut in Baltimore City by this governor. Or, or talking to the, the, the child who comes to an event for us and tells us that last year they ran out of paper in her school. Or the kid who, or, or even my own family talking to my daughter-in-law and, and, and hearing what it, meant, what it means to be an immigrant. Or my other daughter-in-law who tells me what it means to have college loans that are like mortgages. Those things, those stories are the stories that shape what we want to do and what our goal is to make the economy stronger for all working Marylanders, for all people. We want wages to go up. We want small business opportunity. We want every kid to have the option of having an education. And if they don't want to go to college, we want to make sure that they've got the training and the skills to be in the workforce, to be paid a living and good wage. That's what we're, we're doing this for, and we're doing it based on who we are as people and where we came from. There's been some criticism of Vangelis as an outsider. Um, Governor Hogan has said that it's not his job as Maryland governor to worry about federal issues or what the president and Congress do. Um, what do you believe the job of Maryland's governor and lieutenant governor are? And what do you think your responsibility to the people of Maryland is? Well, the governor of Maryland is supposed to represent the people of Maryland and protect our values, our values. And what happens at the national level can seriously affect the lives of Marylanders and everyday people in our, in our state. And we're watching just this week the Kavanaugh hearings um, for the Supreme Court. Governor Hogan has said, oh, it's not, I, it's not my decision. It's not, I don't have a vote. I'm not, I don't care. I, it's not my role. Well, yes, it is your role. A lifelong appointment to the court of the United States matters. It matters. And, and you can then look at what he has done. The governor of Maryland in the next term will have the ability to appoint five new justices of our equivalent Supreme Court, which is the Court of Appeals, because there's mandatory retirement based on age. Who do we want? Do we want people who are going to be standing up for civil rights laws, for voter protection, for um, employment laws, for health care? Our governor has also not stood up, which is why we have a, an attorney general who is now battling for the environment, for the Affordable Care Act, for um, against the emoluments clause, but most importantly, for the Affordable Care Act. We need someone who wants to who wants to strengthen it. I mean, people forget that before the Affordable Care Act, um, people under 26 weren't covered, weren't covered by their parents. Um, people with pre-existing conditions were fighting tooth and nail every day of their lives for coverage, and the Affordable Care Act did good things. We what happens at the national level affects Marylanders every single day. President Trump's tax bill, the Republican tax bill, is costing so many Marylanders dollars 
that they should that they could be using to build their families to fix the economy in our state and to and to move us forward. This election is really a setting the table for 2020. It is the most important election that we have had in decades. Um, we, we're at a time where people have a choice. It is a, a choice that is very clear cut. It is absolutely out there. And what we're doing is energizing people across the state to vote. The more people who vote, the more likely it is that we will be victorious. Because when Democrats vote in Maryland, Democrats win. What I want people to understand is that what happens in Maryland sends a message. Sends a message. So many of us live so our national news is our local news is often national news. And we need to make sure that our local news is national news. That we have an opportunity here to elect a governor in Maryland who stands up for fully funding our schools, for fixing our healthcare system, and investing in small businesses. We don't have a governor who does that now. We can do better. Um, Ben's grandmother, who was his um, sort of guiding star, uh, she's now 101, she'll be 102 in November, um, has told him this a long time ago, and I have grabbed onto it because I find it just so perfect. We're at a time when we can, what she said to him, and, it, and we are at a time where this fits. Ben, baby, <laughs> six foot four, baby. Um, we, you can't just half solve a problem. Because if you half solve a problem, you still have a problem. And I look at where we are, we can't half solve problems. We need to go for full-blown solutions, fully funding, fixing, investing. Those are full-born decisions, directions, moving forward. And I'm so proud to be running with Ben Jealous, who stands up for working families and will help make people's lives better. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Susie. Thanks so much. That was Susie Turnbull, Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. For more information on Bingelis, Susie Turnbull, and their platform, visit bingelis.com. As always, thanks for listening to the Our Maryland Politics and Policy Podcast. See you next time.